You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. My name is Elisa Poteet, and I am the writer and producer of National Security Law Today, along with Holly McMahon, Francis Burkham, and the wonderful members of the committee. So I thank you for listening to us this year, but we have to toot our own horn just a little bit. This year, we have done deep dives on substantive national security issues that will inform national security law. And if you haven't listened to some of these series, I just want to recap for you briefly what we've talked about. We did a six-part series on seabed mining as a national security threat. And in that series, we talked to everyone who works in the area of seabed mining law and issues. We talked to Matt Gianni about the possible long-term threat to the environment and carbon capture that could be the result of seabed mining. The Clarion-Clipperton zone, the CCZ, is an area of about 2 million square miles in the eastern Pacific Ocean, in the international seabed area of the Pacific Ocean. It has a type of mineral resource called polymetallic nodules, or so-called manganese nodules, that lie on the abyssal plains in that area. And these nodules have four main metals in them, manganese, cobalt, copper, and nickel. And it's the cobalt and the nickel that companies that want to mine this area see as the the, the valuable element of this mineral resource. But at the same time, the CCZ, and I can get into this in a bit, is an area which scientists that have been studying this part of of the sea, have identified as one of the most biologically diverse deep sea areas on the planet. And so there's a looming conflict between those who want to mine on the one hand and those who recognize or assert that we need to protect the environment in this area as states have committed to do uh, elsewhere in the world's oceans. We talked about U.S. interests with Greg O'Brien and Kate Groro from the State Department. And that had to do with whether or not the United States had a treaty that applied to this area or any law. We also talked about what else is involved in deep sea mining, and that is a possible menace to undersea cables, which obviously allow us to have international connectivity with the Internet. They sit on the surface of the seafloor in the deep ocean, including the Clarion-Clipperton zone, although there's only one there right now, which I'll talk about a little later. Uh, In coastal areas, cables are typically buried up to three meters to protect them from vessel anchors and fishing, which may not seem obvious, but those are the big threats to submarine cables. Statistically, more than 70% of cable damage each year uh, results from fishing and anchors. So that protects them in shallow waters, but those aren't issues in deep water, but increasingly mining is a concern there. Most people think of submarine cables as big, large diameter infrastructure, something very strong and resilient. Submarine fiber optic cables are roughly the size of a garden hose, and they are susceptible to damage from things like mining equipment, vessel anchors, and fishing gear if those activities aren't coordinated. But those cables carry the vast majority, about 99% of international internet data and voice traffic. We then turned to the issue of the battery revolution, and that is the way in which technology is changing so that we might be able to recycle some of these minerals instead of burning through everything that we have on the planet. And for that, we talked to Greg Less, a battery scientist who has worked in the automotive industry and who understands the technology very well. 
We also talked about the life forms that live on the deep seabed and what they may mean for our personal survival should that area be upset. After that, though, we thought it's time to move on. And the reason we did is because the war in Ukraine broke out. So we started our series on Ukraine and the mind of Putin with Rob Dannenberg, a former CIA station chief and 30-year studier of Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin, who's been the president of the Russian Federation on and off, mostly on, for the last 21 years, has been carefully preparing for the moment of confrontation with the West that he has seemingly sought for those 21 years, if not before. I think he gave the world a notice of his intent at his uh, remarks at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, where for the first time he publicly and passionately pointed out in his view, the broken promises that had been made by the West to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, principally centering around alleged promises of no eastward expansion of NATO. But also Putin then went on to complain about the inadequacy of the U.S.-led unipolar world. And since that time, Munich 2007, he lays out these grievances in a quite astonishing speech, but it fast follows it by withdrawing Russia from the conventional forces in Europe agreement. August of 2008, just under a year after his speech, he invades the Republic of Georgia very quickly to the uh, annexation then of Crimea in March of 2014, followed by supporting insurrectionist movements in the Don Basin, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, and Russia's military intervention in Syria in 2015, and the intervention of their mercenaries in Libya and elsewhere on the continent of Africa. At each stage in this, Putin has continued to reiterate the grievances that he initiated or called our attention to in Munich of 2007. But what he has done lately is he's gone deeper into history. It's instructive, if you haven't already, to go back and take a look at the essay he published in July of 2021 on the unity of the Russian and Ukrainian peoples. It was available in English until very recently on the Kremlin.ru website, but that website has been taken down by hackers for the last week or so. So if you don't already have a copy of it, you're going to have to read uh, interpretations of it until that site comes back up, if it ever does. But in that really quite remarkable essay, he, for the first time, sort of publicly in writing, asserts that Ukraine has no history as a nation, that it's an artificial construct of various misinterpretations throughout history, most recently from Putin's perspective in the Soviet era when it was the Ukraine became a Soviet socialist republic. And as such, Putin goes, goes on to talk about Russia's imperial destiny and perhaps thereby his own reflections on his destiny. Let's not forget he's 69 years old. He'll turn 70 in October, which according to the actuarial tables for Russian males, he's long past his time. However fit he professes himself to be and likes to display himself publicly as being. But he's starting to think about his legacy and fulfilling his destiny. 
We also talked about the law of war with Judge James Baker, who knows very well how far that law extends and what violations were being committed by Russia. We also talked about the national security laws available to crack down on the dirty money that makes it possible for someone like Vladimir Putin to control all the natural resources in Russia and cow all of these oligarchs who were basically given this wealth at the time that the USSR dissolved. After that, we thought it was time for some fun and we all needed it. So we talked to girl astronaut Audrey Powers. And that was a fantastic conversation because she is an astronaut and lawyer in Blue Origin. And she talks a lot about space, what laws she had to look at when she was functioning as a lawyer and what the experience of being an astronaut was like. We then turned our attention to something that was related to our seabed series. And that was we took a look at supply chains and what was happening with our utter breakdown during COVID with supply chains that were so important to national security, including to chips. And then we pivoted back because we went through what was happening in Russia, as well as the history that led to this invasion in Ukraine. And we spoke to Professor Angela Stent, who has written extensively on Vladimir Putin. When we were finished with that, we kept you informed and we went back to talk about the semiconductor industry with a spokesperson from Intel, Tom Quillen. We then returned to the issue of Ukraine, which is something that we will probably do in the new year as well. And we spoke to Eugene Fenman, who was a colonel in the JAG Corps and the former deputy legal advisor at the White House, on his perspective on Ukraine. We then went on to talk a little bit about whistleblowers and the law with Mike Atkinson, who had been the inspector general for the intelligence community in a two-part series. When we were finished with that, we took you to new and exciting issues, and that is the deep fakes that we now see all over the internet and the dangers of synthetic media. And we turned to Matt Ferraro, who is a lawyer at Wilmer Hale and who has become an expert in this area. We then returned to the issue of Ukraine and we recapped a conversation that was had with John Arath, who is the senior policy director of the Center for Arms Control and Non-Proliferation. But then we turned to something that I really especially enjoyed, and that is writer Matt Campbell from the Financial Times, who's written a book called Dead in the Water. And the importance of that discussion was how loose the law is regarding the shipping industry and how readily the insurance industry pays out, regardless of what might have happened when there's a loss of a vessel. We continued on. We switched and had a conversation briefly about the defense industrial base, basically what was happening in China at the time. We then pivoted and we talked about our interdependence with China and the future of Al-Qaeda with Seth Jones and Jamil Jaffer, which was an exciting conversation. And they are two people I always enjoy talking to. But just for a little bit of levity, we thought, let's talk with Stacey Vanek-Smith of NPR, who had written a terrific book that was guidance, basically, for women entering the workplace called Machiavelli for Women. That was a wonderful conversation and one I thoroughly enjoyed. Now, as the January 6th hearings got underway, we also began to think about the role of the actual media and how it has influenced us to become divided as a nation. We're fortunate enough to talk to Chris Steyerwald, formerly of Fox News and author of Broken News and the Media Rage Machine, which was a terrific conversation. You might remember that he testified before the January 6th committee 
And this book was less on that topic and more on what happened to the news industry and how we've all lost our lingua franca and become more or less addicted to the rage machine that now is the media. We were extremely lucky to talk to a really terrific author and big thinker, Ari Wallach, who has written a really terrific book on how short-term thinking basically is a big problem for all of us. But in our case, it's a problem for the way we see national security. Even when we look at like Aztec and Mayan empires, we consistently see when they overextend, be it food supply or on population or in their conflict making, this more often than not leads to the end of these empires. And look, there's something to be said for creative destruction, some rise, some fall. There's a, you know, Thucydides trap, hegemonic upheaval and whatnot. That being said, at this point in time, the role of the nation state, and specifically, I think the U.S., is of vital importance. So we have to look at history to see what leads us to points of both flourishing and collapse. And it's, you know, it's, I've been talking to a lot of folks and they say they're surprised how much kind of history is in a book about the future. And so much of Longpath is recognizing that, you know, as my dad used to say, you know, my dad who fought in World War II as a teenager, was a Nazi hunter after the war. He used to say, look, remember the future started yesterday, right? This, this idea that what we are on, whatever that kind of path dependency on either in our own individual lives, in our careers, or as countries, or as a species, it doesn't start today. It started generations ago. Many, many things I talk about in the book it's also a surprise to folks is I, I, I go 150,000, 200,000 years back because to me, how we're hardwired at, let's say the amygdala or the, you know, the limbic level, as well as how we, the, you know, the software, which is basically culture, how all that manifests in our decision-making apparatus, be it in our living rooms and our family rooms and our classrooms, or even in the situation room is really based on very deep historical examples and trends and ways of how we are today. So it's unbelievably important that we kind of look to the past to have a really good idea about where we are right now and to learn lessons so we don't repeat things, which I hate to say it more often than not, we kind of keep repeating these mistakes. When we then talked to former Senator Russ Feingold and Professor Peter Prenville at Stanford, who've written a book called The Constitution in Jeopardy on the impending threats to the Constitution by a proposed constitutional convention. They also gave us a lot of history, and we discussed what could happen to the national security if some of these constitutional conventions manage to be successful. The running joke after that podcast was, if you're in favor of a very small government, Somalia is just lovely in the fall. We then had a great opportunity to recap a conversation we had with Professor Ned Foley about the risks and remedies to fair elections that are posed under the Constitution and under the rules regarding the Electoral College. This is an important conversation because it reminded me of some things that I didn't quite understand, which is we really do not have one person, one vote rights. But most recently, we've turned to something that will be increasingly important in 2023, and that is that we did a very long and thorough deep dive on the Islamic Republic of Iran. How did it become the Islamic Republic of Iran? Why is it so cozy with Russia and supplying them with attack drones? 
What was our involvement in terms of our intelligence community in Iran, and how has that informed the way Iranians see us now? We were fortunate enough to talk to Ray Take of the Council on Foreign Relations. We also talked about all the national security laws that apply to how we deal with Iran with Brian Egan, who is a great source of that information and a member of the committee. And finally, we talked to a terrific author and professor at the London School of Economics, a longtime student of Iran and a professor on that topic, Raham Alavandi. As uh, Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, the, the oil of Iran became absolutely you know, vital strategic prize for the Allied powers. And on top of that, Iran's land access from the Persian Gulf through to the Soviet Union was vital for the Allies to be able to supply the Soviet Union with the Lend-Lease aid um, that they needed in order to defend themselves against Hitler's Germany. The Iranians under Reza Shah, the founder of the Pahlavi dynasty, the father of the last Shah, their policy was one of neutrality. And if you can imagine from an Iranian point of view, they didn't particularly want the Allies to win the war. The greatest threat to Iran came from the British Empire and from the Soviet Union. So an Allied victory would not play out very well for Iran, whereas Germany was a distant power that had no colonial or imperial role in the Middle East. And so the sympathies of Iranians, and I think many people throughout the region, was with Germany. But the Iranians adopted an official position of neutrality, which meant that there were many German advisors in Iran. Iran was doing a huge amount of business with Germany. There's a lot of German investment in Iran. And this became a sort of pretext for the Allies to invade Iran in, in 1941 and to depose Reza Shah and install his very young son, 21-year-old son, Mohammad Reza Shah, on the throne of Iran. And it was really touch and go as to whether even the Pahlavi dynasty would survive or, in fact, whether Iran would survive the war. And it's really only thanks to very, very cunning diplomacy by Iranian statesmen who didn't really have much of a hand to play. I mean, they had a barely functioning government. They had no army. They had no wealth. All they had really was a, a government on paper and a, and a sort of nominal international independence, you know, but they played that very well at the Tehran conference in 1943, where Churchill and Roosevelt uh, and Stalin uh, were present in Iran, they secured an agreement from the big three that Iran would maintain its independence after the war, and that the great powers would commit themselves to that. That was really the beginning of, of America, of America's role in Iran, which was a reluctant one. Because from the American point of view prior to that, Iran was really considered part of the British sphere of influence. But Franklin Roosevelt had a sense that as the world changes, as we go into this new era of the United Nations and of a new world order that's supposed to be based on the rule of international law, perhaps Iran can be an example of what the United States can do in the world. And finally, a really fun conversation with a young new attorney really a student right now, but on her way to being attorney, Shervin Tahran, who has really looked at how social media is getting into Iran and how it is informing the current protests. With their armed forces, they have both the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC, and they also have a conventional military. 
which is called the Artesh, and that's just their standing ground forces. So it's the IRGC that we hear about all the time, and it's the Basige, which is a special paramilitary force that is run by the IRGC that you also hear about in terms of being around in the street and abusing people or harassing people. So separately on the second prong, on the law enforcement side, you have your traditional security law enforcement doing routine traffic stop violations, et cetera. And then you also separately have the morality police. And the morality police are also people in the streets, generally unmarked, but with some sort of an authority to detain you, specifically if they find that you are dressed inappropriately or doing something else that goes against this moral code of conduct. Any of those actors, it could be someone who could detain you in the streets, but it would probably be either the Basij or the morality police. And more frequently than not, the morality police, simply because it's kind of their only job. But for cyber crimes and for restricting communication, it actually gets even a little bit more complicated and complex. Because now it's not just the law enforcement or even the IRGC and the Basij getting involved, although they are to some extent. But now you also have Iran's intelligence services that get involved because of the monitoring and surveillance aspect of it, or also because of their own operations that they might be conducting. The beginning part of the research I was looking at last year when I started this project was Iran's cyber operations. And how Iran conducts targeted cyber operations outside of the country. And a lot of that is done by both the Intel services as well as the IRGC. So even the Supreme Leader can also get involved. The Supreme Leader has offices as well focused just on cyber policy and by extension its communications and surveillance and monitoring called the Supreme Council of Cyberspace, where they kind of develop a lot of their policies. So at any point, any one of these entities can get involved and target a particular individual. But common charges for internet crimes are already kind of echoing existing criminal charges. They could be blasphemy, insulting the supreme leader, immoral behavior, or spreading propaganda, colluding with a foreign adversary, you name it. Generally, those punishments tend to be fines, prison time, or even lashes, but they have also led to execution, even setting aside the current round of protests. Just really quickly, I think one case that I want to highlight to really illustrate this is the case of Rahullah Zem. So Zem created a really popular Telegram channel with 1.4 million subscribers. This channel is known as Ahmed News, and it shared damaging news about the clerical establishment. Zem had been imprisoned after the 2009 presidential elections and the Green Movement, and he fled to France in 2011. There he was granted asylum. Allegedly, the Ahmed News Channel was also used to coordinate protests and circulated a manual for a Molotov cocktail, and Iran successfully forced Telegram to shut down the channel for inciting violence in 2018. One year later, Zam was lured to Iraq to meet with someone who said that they could potentially help him with his work. But instead, he was arrested in Iraq by government forces, and he was transferred to the IRGC, who then took him back to Iran. After a bare-bone trial with little evidence of the 17 criminal charges, he was convicted and executed in December of 2020. So for those of you who've listened to us this year, thanks a lot. For those of you who always wanted to learn a lot about these subjects, but you weren't really quite sure where you could do it easily in your day, it's here. 
So go back and take a look. And we hope that we helped you a lot. But we're looking forward to the new year right now. So we would ask you, why don't you mark your calendars for our next event, which is a luncheon February 22nd at noon at the Army Navy Club. It'll feature a conversation with Raj Day, now a partner at Mayor Brown, but also the former general counsel of NSA. And he's going to moderate a discussion with Matt Axelrod, who is the Assistant Secretary for Export Enforcement at Commerce. This is not a small thing. That's a big job. One thing to know about the committee is that we post announcements, upcoming programs, and links to new reports and publications. And you should be looking out for our next Women in National Security Law program, and the details will be available on our website soon. If you're thinking that you want to buy a gift for somebody that works in national security law, of course, we want you to buy the U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook. It's in paper. It's big. You can take it into a skiff. And we'll give you a discount of 25% if you use the code that's available on the website. It's in its eighth edition. And I can only tell you that every national security lawyer that I know has this book in their office, and you should too. We really appreciate your support and your interest this year. What we really need from you right now is for those of you who listen to the cast, please go on iTunes or Spotify and give us a review. However short, it makes a big difference. Thanks for listening. And I also want to thank all the members of the standing committee for their willingness to always provide topics and to assist in getting our guests for this podcast. Every single one of them is generous in spirit, and they have been tremendously helpful. If you have comments for us and you want to reach back, you can find us on Twitter, at least while Twitter is still working, at ABA NATSEC. You can also reach us if you want to send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Thanks so much for listening this year, and I promise to bring you a lot more content next year. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.